You are listening to Ideas Aloud, a podcast series by the Institute for Democracy and Economic Affairs, Ideas Malaysia. For more information about our work, log on to www.ideas.org.my to download our policy papers. Uh, it's 11.03 a.m. now and um, today we are here for, again, as I mentioned, um, Ideas First webinar. Um, it's a dramatic time for Malaysia and the world. Um, I think everyone um, is feeling the effects um, of this global pandemic. Uh, thank you all, all, all of you who, who are joining us this morning. Thank you for taking the time to join us. Um, today, we're discussing the economic impacts of the ongoing uh, COVID-19 crisis. Now, we know that the government is trying to strike the very difficult balance um, between defeating the virus uh, while at the same time, uh, knowing that these measures will also have a significant impact on the economy. And we are seeing some of these effects already. I think our panelists will be uh, better prepared to answer. Um, in Malaysia, we know that the MCO has now um, been announced by the Prime Minister to continue until 14th of April. And uh, he also indicated there's a possibility of extending beyond that. So we must all ensure that at the moment, we learn the lessons from the last 10 days, uh, what have we learned, and ask the critical questions of our government moving forward, forward as well. So um, with me today, I'm delighted to have four excellent panelists who are going to help us unpack uh, this discussion. Um, I think I'll introduce uh, all of them uh, now, and then later when they come on, uh, I'll just refer to them immediately so that we can get straight into it. So uh, first, we have Christopher Chong Wing Wai from Kazana Research Institute. Now, Chris is the Deputy Director of Research at uh, KRI. His research interests uh, pivot around poverty, inequality, and exclusion in the context of economic growth and social spatial processes. He's been really prominent in the last 10 days, um, urging the government to put in place strongest social safety nets, and we look forward to, to hearing his latest thoughts. Um, we also have Rachel Gong from KRI. Um, okay, let, let me do this. I will, I will say your names now and then I'll introduce your backgrounds later so that it doesn't get too long. But we have Rachel Gong from KRI. We have Carmelo uh, Ferlito, an Ideas Fellow. And also we have from Singapore, Dr. Jayant Menon, um, currently a visiting fellow of the IC's Yusuf Isha Institute, uh, formerly from ADB. Um, I'll go into a bit of their backgrounds later. Uh, but for now, let me first hand over um, the screen to Christopher Chung, and uh, he, will, he will jump into um, his, his point of view. And I think each of them will be given about perhaps eight minutes or so to speak. And um, to Chris, I would like to ask, um, you know, maybe you can give a short uh, breakdown of what the government has done so far. And how do you think the government can continue ensuring that social protection is adequate as people face, you know, significantly falling incomes and what are the gaps uh, in current government policy as well? Okay, so um, I will now, let me see, sorry. Uh, I'm supposed to put this on, on Chris now. Uh, okay, there you go. All right. Hey, thanks, thanks, uh, thanks, Tricia, for the introduction, and thanks, Ideas from Malaysia, for inviting me to speak. And a big hello to all the audience out there. I saw the list, and there are some familiar names, so very glad that you can join us as well. Uh, I guess by way of introduction, maybe I'll just start off by saying that um, I think we have to think about this current economic challenge that we are facing as uh, something that is very different from uh, previous economic recessions that we have seen, whether it is the 97 uh, Asian financial crisis or the 0809 uh, global financial crisis. Um, and I think because this is actually driven by a pandemic, it's actually caused by COVID-19, which requires people to stay at home. And I think that inevitably will result in uh, people not being um, able to contribute to production. And even if they are able to work from home, I think productivity will be uh, impacted. Uh, and also, I think the shocks that are coming in uh, to, to the economic system right now, is not just a shock that is from the demand side, but it's also a shock that's coming from the supply side in terms of disruptions in uh, global supply chain and all that. So, which is why I think I have called for a shift of our thinking in terms of strategy of how to deal with the economic challenge. It's not really to 
to, 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 to think in terms of our conventional way of wanting to stimulate the economy using our conventional policy tools of wanting to increase aggregate demand, to get people to consume and to spend. But really, it is about uh, putting in place a protection strategy, which is what I call to protect the, the productive potential of our economy. And I think for, for a few reasons, in the sense that one, we have to recognize that our workers, our firms, our productive assets at this point is not inherently unproductive. I mean, they are staying home because they want to avert a crisis. And I think that should be the priority right now. Um, and I think second, the kind of economic linkages between employers and employees are something that have been built uh, over time and it's valuable. And so we want to prevent the economic linkages from being destroyed as well. So I think which is why we want to um, um, protect this productive potential uh, from from it being uh, from seeing our economic system descending into some kind of uh, systemic collapse and the destruction of these economic linkages later on. And I think it also allows, I think, our productive uh, potential to be able to bounce back faster uh, so that we can restart production when the crisis is over. And I think one of the central sort of um, element of this social protection strategy is uh, a massive um, employment retention program. So the government actually has introduced one version of that right now, which is also called the ERP, uh, which is under the I think they tag it to the EIS, which is our unemployment insurance system, uh, which is at the moment a very small scale program because it targets the 3,000 workers. It is uh, the payout of six, 600 ringgit over a period of six months. And I'm really not sure if that is adequate. But I think the idea of having a massive uh, employment retention program uh, it's really about government coming in to provide wage subsidy to uh, employees, or it can be even some kind of a wage sharing mechanism between employers and employees. And when I talk about the employment retention, uh, a lot of times the feedback I got is that uh, you shouldn't just be taking care of uh, workers, but you should also be taking care of the firms at this point. And I think that is a misconception of what the ERP is all about because the employment retention program is really about addressing the economic linkage, about preserving this linkage between the employer and the employee um, by allowing to recognize that actually firms, because of revenue loss at this time, they also need to take some of the labor reduction measures uh, as part of their overall cost-cutting measures. Uh, but they don't bear the full cost of this. The government comes in to subsidize part of this uh, to workers. Um, but we also need to make sure that workers are sufficiently protected at this stage so that they have something uh, they can continue to pay for basic needs, continue to, to meet financial obligations at this stage. So I think um, uh, I won't go into the details too much. I think we can have more discussion around it. But just to sort of motivate the discussion, I will just uh, end here. Okay. Um, thanks so much. Uh Thank you, Chris, for, um, for doing a really good introduction on your point of view. Um, I'd like to share a screen, actually. Uh, let me just put that up at the moment. Okay. So I hope everyone can see this. Um, I just wanted your quick feedback on this. So this chart basically shows you um, the announced fiscal stimulus in each of the countries displayed as a percentage of GDP. Uh, these are all stimulus that have been announced uh, ever since COVID-19 started. And you can see that uh, the first stimulus that was announced by Malaysia was 1.2% of GDP, uh, which is very small. And of course, Singapore has since gone up to about 11% uh, based on its announcement yesterday. So we expect that there's going to be a stimulus announced today by the Prime Minister. Um, what do you think the percentage should be? I mean, looking at what France, the UK, Germany, US and so on have already announced. And do you expect that it's going to be anywhere near as large as, say, France and the UK? Uh, so I think on the fiscal stimulus, I mean, looking at what other countries have done, I mean, it's already a clear indication that we need a larger fiscal stimulus compared to what we have right now. I mean, the, the number that has been thrown around in terms of the economic package now is about 160B. Uh, but we have to recognize that about, 100, uh, about 103 billion is actually coming from monetary policy. Another 50 over billion is coming from EPF. Uh, and only about 4 billion is coming from our fiscal um, stimulus. So I think definitely we need to increase this significantly. I, I, I'm not sure if I can put a, a, a number to this right now, but just looking at um, what other countries have done. But I, I've highlighted also that I, that I think that there is some kind of a fiscal challenge right now uh, because of a fiscal rule that the country has, uh, which may actually block 
us from significantly increasing the amount because if you look at the, what we call the current balance, um, I think in 2018, it is slightly below 2.5 billion. So that means we actually have very limited fiscal space right now unless they can find other ways of actually raising the funds. So on the one hand, I'm, I'm really hoping that they would increase the amount. But on the other hand, I'm just wondering how they're going to do that given some of these structural challenges that the government is facing. Yeah, indeed. Um, I think the government is uh, going through a difficult time. In, I mean, already we know that the previous government um, was having problems in meeting its its fiscal targets. Uh, so it's it's really going to come into a difficulty in the next in the next quarter. Um, okay, so I think um, we we can come back to you. And I think once we've we've heard views from all the different panelists, uh, I'm going to probably address questions to each of you, and then of of course we're going to open it up to uh, the participants later as well. But um, let's just jump to uh, your colleague, actually, also from KRI, Rachel Gong. Now, Rachel is a senior research associate at the Kazana Research Institute as well. Um, she is researching digital tech, so digital technologies in society, a collective behavior and social movements, urban policy. Now, there's much discussion now about the potential to use digital surveillance as a tool in the fight um, against the virus and from what I understand, uh, while some countries have been using digital tech uh, for contact tracing, um, that's not something that Malaysia is currently doing. Uh, but I am I, not the expert on this. And perhaps I could go over to Rachel now. Um, Rachel, can you share your thoughts about how digital tech can assist us in the ongoing uh, crisis? Sure. Hi. Uh, just again, very quickly, wanted to echo uh, Chris's thanks for two ideas for organizing this and inviting us to be uh, part of the panel. Um, yeah, so in thinking a little bit about what technology, digital tech in particular, and the internet can do in a situation like this, I think we're all seeing how dependent we are on solid internet infrastructure in the country. Uh, there have been some initial reports that when the MCO first started, uh, the traffic, data traffic from Malaysia obviously went up a bit, but the performance was mostly consistent. And we are now actually, as you know, we get further into the MCO seeing it take a little bit more of a hit. So kudos to the telcos and um, you know, backbone infrastructure people who are still working on that. But in terms of thinking about how we can actually apply the tech to being able to address the pandemic, digital surveillance and contact tracing is one option. And we don't quite have the system set up in the way that China and South Korea have set it up such that it can be managed at the government level. Uh, right now, I think the most practical option is perhaps for MOH officials, officers, when they're doing their contact tracing interviews to request permission from um, patients and POIs to uh, have access to their phone GPS to be able to trace more accurately in case, for example, people might have forgotten where they were in the last seven days or exactly what areas they might have uh, you know, wandered into and who they might have come into contact with. And when you overlay that sort of data, again, with consent from the user, over some of the maps that the MOH already has on where hot zones are, I think it could be used potentially to sort of estimate where we are going to see uh, increased number of cases and to predict where the spread might be going. But of course, this is going to require uh, perhaps a little bit more effort and, um, and technical ability than we have right now in the midst of the crisis. The other thing that I actually think the government could perhaps do to improve communications, especially because we know there is a misinformation problem with a lot of, you know, uh, here are ways you can avoid infection, here are ways you can reuse your mask, uh, you know, drink water every 15 minutes, that sort of thing. If the government were a little bit more uh, open and transparent with its lines of communication, uh, for example, if they were to continue texting alerts. Uh, right now, I believe a lot of people are receiving SMS text alerts from the National Security Council. But I think if MOH were to get into this as well and perhaps be able to text people updates on the state of uh, the spread of the disease, what areas might be potential areas that people would want to uh, be careful of, even if they're going out to do their essential tasks and all that, that might be helpful. Um, and, you know, making sure that there is a, a channel of communication for people who might not have access to social media, who might not be intentionally turning on the news to try and be informed. At least the government then is coming in and, and being proactive about that. 
and then I think, of course, the other way that telcos can get involved uh, is to really improve and enhance the data initiatives that they've already suggested. A number of them are offering a lot of, uh, you know, improved services, free data, and so on. Uh, but where I would be a little bit, uh, dare I say, critical of that is I noticed that a lot of the plans are targeted towards postpaid customers. And the reality, I think, is that postpaid customers are the people who may have a, already a large bucket of data, may have a fixed broadband at homes, and aren't in need of additional data. Whereas you have, I think, um, daily wage workers, uh, people looking for gig work, uh, people who who aren't working from home, who have been told that they can't come into work and can't make an income, who might need extra data to try and see what other uh, sources of revenue they can try and find and try and generate. And it's really these people that we should be targeting the free data initiatives at. Uh, so those are just a, a few of the thoughts that I have. I'm happy to uh, you know, elaborate a little bit more on those or talk about community initiatives. But I think upfront, that's uh, just what I wanted to say. Uh, thanks, Rachel. Um, I think you talked about the need to have um, transmissions from the Ministry of Health as well. Uh, I believe that um, the MOH and the National Security Council both have uh, telegram messaging services. But the unfortunate thing is I think perhaps not everyone is familiar uh, with Telegram. And of course, direct SMS would be much more effective. But I just had one quick question for you, um, which is that, you know, okay, say, I don't know, wh whatever the, the time span is that people are expecting this to abate, say 18 months or so, um, what do you think will take place in this, in all of our societies when the tech surveillance has already, you know, been heightened up, pushed up to the maximum. Uh, will it not be difficult for both governments and people to roll back some of these surveillance? And what does that do for, you know, data security? Yeah, that's, that's a really, really good question. And that's something that I think a lot of countries are struggling with and why a lot of the more privacy-oriented countries, particularly in the West, are reluctant to enable digital surveillance. They're worried that, uh, essentially they're worried about mission creep, right? That something that you start right now could later on be used for more insidious purposes. And, you know, the, uh, there's a great privacy advocate in the United States, the Electronic Frontier Foundation, that tries to tackle this issue. And they say that, you know, you have got to consider and regulate very carefully what are emergency what are steps you take in an emergency, in a crisis that do not get to be translated into an ongoing system? So it's very much, let's set up this ad hoc system that we can turn off and enable regulations that, that require this thing to be turned off in a non-emergency scenario and then should, you know, we unfortunately be placed into another crisis, turn that back on as and when needed. But admittedly, this is not um, something that people, that there's a good example for. I think it's something that everybody is still working on and still thinking about. And I think Malaysians are very privacy oriented and, and conscious about that and very careful about who they give their data to. But I think, you know, as even with thinking about spending and, and things like that, it's we're in a situation now where we may have to give up some of those freedoms for the public good. Uh, thank you, Rachel. Um, let's move on now to our next speaker. So we have with us Carmelo Ferlito, Dr. Carmelo Ferlito, uh, who is an Ideas Fellow. He is the Director of the Centre of Market Education. And he, interestingly, I think, and, and also most importantly for our discussion today, is a manager of an SME in the food industry here in Malaysia. So Carmelo has um, on-the-ground experience of what businesses are going through as a result of the MCO so I think in addition to his perspective as an academic um, economist, uh, his views on how the government can help uh, businesses to carry on will be really uh, very interesting. Uh, but before I go to Carmelo, I also want to just share uh, some some charts, which I, uh, well, uh, one or two that will, I think, be very useful uh, for the audience. So, um, sorry, I apologize in advance that I didn't even have a time to um, show our panelists these graphs that I'm asking them to comment on. Um, but let me just show you this one, which um, I hope everyone can see on the screen. It basically uh, shows the the proportion of food of Malaysia's food supply in 2017. 
Um, the one in orange is is imported food. Uh, in blue is is locally produced, so production, and then in grey is what we export. Um, so Carmelo, maybe you have a better sense of how to comment on this. And um, I think the main question on everyone's minds is, um, okay, well, food food supply is one thing, but maybe first talk about business community and SMEs, and then later we can talk about the supply chain of food, which you have direct uh, experience in. Okay, over to you, Kamen. Yeah, thank you, Trisha, and thanks for having me. Uh, well, um, the situation is uh, is complicated, and uh, I don't want to give the impression that some of my considerations might uh, uh, look like emotionless. But instead, in this scenario, my perspective is uh, is full of emotions. I look, uh, of course, at uh, at Italy with concern. My family is living in, in the red area and uh, in Italy due to the uh, present uh, uh, traveling difficulties. If something would happen to my family, I would even be unable to be, uh, to be in Italy in this moment. So, I mean, I'm emotionally involved with the, with, with the current scenario. And um, the, the example of Italy... Uh, that many countries are, are taking is unfortunately showing that uh, probably uh, a prolonged uh, blackout of uh, the movements of the people is not enough uh, or not the best measure uh, in order to, to solve the problem. Italy has been under a lockdown for three weeks and uh, yesterday we had 4,500 cases and 700 people dying of COVID only yesterday. So um, I'm afraid that um, the direction that the government is taking in Malaysia, where instead the mortality rate is much lower because we are close to 1% against the 10% of Italy, uh, is risking with the disruption in the supply chain to create more problems coming from the economic difficulties than the ones that are actually produced by uh, by the virus itself. So we should look at uh, at the trade-offs implied uh, implied in this. Um, and what probably now the, the, the policymakers are not realizing is that the the supply chain is so much. Uh, uh, vertically and horizontally integrated that even to distinguish between uh, essential services or essential products and non-essential ones is uh, is utopistic, I would say. And I mentioned to you already this example, if we look at chicken farms that I know very well uh, because of my, of my job, uh, we all can... Uh, assume that uh, chicken production is essential in Malaysia. Chicken of uh, Malaysians are the third world consumer of chicken per capita in the world, 46 kilo per person per year. Um, uh, but in order to produce chicken, you need machines nowadays. So farms are not that romantic uh, as they were used to be in the past. So uh, you use motors, you need air conditioning, you need screws that are produced maybe in a small village in China. Uh, you, lose, you, you need ventilators that are produced maybe in Taiwan or piece of papers for the cooling that are produced again, maybe in China or in Italy or in Thailand. Um, so how in the realm of, uh, in example, livestock production, how do you really distinguish be, between what is essential and and what is not essential. So, if chicken is essential, we should, uh, uh, you know, uh, to to judge as essential whatever is necessary to produce chicken. And then you go to Siemens that produce motors uh, for chicken farms, an example for the feeding lines. And how can you tell to Siemens you have to produce? only those motors that are actually used in chicken farms and you can't produce motors that goes in other industries. So we risk to spend more time in uh, brainstorming about essential and non-essential products and services than actually being involved in, uh, in solving the problems. So I would uh, tackle these uh, 
problem uh, from a different perspective because uh, in this moment I believe we are risking uh, to remain without food supply on the shelf of the supermarkets. This, this is what we are risking. Um, and I would say let's restart a gradual uh, gradually the economic activity but rather than spending money with uh, with a lot of subsidies here and there uh, that have of course a very limited um, impact in time and cannot be prolonged forever let's spend this money in implementing massive testing on the workplaces involving the private sector the, the i mean the health private sector uh, asking support from uh, faculties of medicines, so from the university, and and follow a more Korean-style uh, uh, approach to the problem. So you are sure that the people that are going to work, and we can imagine a gradual uh, stepping back to work, are not infected. I did that for my staff. Before the lockdown, I got all my staff tested to be sure that people are safe. And I was happy to pay for for my staff to to get uh, to get tested. So um, we we need, uh, as was mentioned, temporary support to employment and maybe something more from the fiscal uh, from the fiscal side. But I think that we achieve uh, greater results uh, with a massive strategy of testing that will allow the uh, production possibilities in Malaysia to gradually uh, to gradually restart because uh, let's not forget that uh, uh, most of the um, economic structure of Malaysia is made of small and medium enterprises uh, the company where i work is a branch of a multinational company we we can stand for long but 90% of the um, economic structure in Malaysia is made of SMEs. How long can they uh, stand without uh, operating and uh, how long the government can support them uh, of being uh, non-operational? So these are the, the questions that we should ask and probably we sh should lead us toward uh, toward another approach. And last consideration, um, think that uh, um, we are going to hand the MOC on 14 of April, but what is going to happen on the 23 of April when the fasting month will start and we will have all the gatherings that happen with the Buka Puasa, so the breakfasting every evening. Uh, which kind of approach are we going to take on this, which involves uh, so gathering of people, uh, supply massive supply of food, what are we going to, to do with this? So with the fasting month approaching, we risk to have to prolong uh, the lockdown until the end of May if we don't opt for, for a different approach. Uh, Carmelo, thank you for your uh, for your initial thoughts. Um, what you shared about the, the interconnectedness both vertically and horizontally of uh, of the food supply chain, I think is is of real interest to all of us. I mean, ultimately, we are the the consumers of food, and I think that really needs to be the priority of the government uh, for now. I'm just wanted, wanting to pull up uh, another chart again that shows you on the screen um, just how integrated you know our our supply chain really is. And this is from an article that uh, one of our uh, colleagues at Ideas wrote, um, Lawrence. So I think it basically echoes what you are saying that if you look from you know agriculture culture, processing, I mean, there's small uh, elements within the, the supply chain that perhaps um, the government isn't thinking of. And we know from anecdotal evidence already that uh, some of these companies are having problems in getting their produce out. There was a news article about how uh, Cameron Highlands had to dump, uh, some of the farmers in Cameron had to dump a, a whole supply of vegetables and fruit, which are obviously things that, you know, people in the Klang Valley would have benefited from. But, um, but so what I'm just trying to understand now. So what is it? What is the solution that you are recommending for the government government to do? If you're saying that it's not possible to separate between what's essential and non-essential, are you saying then that everything in the food supply chain needs to be fully operational at the moment? And how do we then mitigate um, the possible negative impacts of further spread of the virus? 
Well, what what I would say, what I would propose is a step-by-step uh, reintegration of activities only after a big effort on massive testing. So being sure that the people that are going to work together within the same physical space are not infected. And this is one point. The second point is uh, uh, reintroducing immediately logistics among the essential uh, services. Uh, the news of this morning was that uh, the MOT, the Minister of Transport, uh, asked uh, to remove, to, to start to move out uh, non-essential goods from the port because the Port Klang and Port Penang are, uh, are collapsing because uh, goods are not allowed to go out and if the non-essential goods don't go out even the essential ones cannot go out because ports have limited capacity uh, and you have shown the the massive import of food that we have to come back to the example of chicken 65 percent of cost of production of chicken comes from feed and malaysia doesn't produce feed for chicken is a uh, almost 100% imported from India and from US. So you need to allow these things to, to come in. So logistics need to be restored 100% and as a, as a huge priority. Then effort on massive testing and gradual come back to at least to the manufacturing sector, to those functions that cannot be performed from home. There are a lot of jobs that still can go ahead from home, but manufacturing, at least at a reduced scale, but this can be learned only from experience, need to be, need to be restored. Okay, um, thank you very much, uh, Carmelo. I mean, obviously, I think even from amongst the panelists already, we can see um, the constraints that government is operating under, while on the one hand, um, what Chris has mentioned about the need to expand social protection, but on the other hand, we have uh, also the need to continue uh, economic production, and we know that the government is also struggling with its with its existing uh, fiscal targets. So, how do we actually come up with a plan that works, and not just for the for the short term, but for the long term? Um, we will have a bit more active discussion later, but uh, now I'd like to turn to our final speaker. Uh, but before that, I'd also like to do some um, housekeeping, which is that uh, the, the, the participants, and I'm glad more of you have joined us. Thank you for, for joining us. Uh, you can actually already start um, asking questions. So there's a Q&A box somewhere that you can click on. And I see that uh, Rachel has already been uh, very good at multitasking and answering one question. Uh, please start to put up your questions there so that you know I, as the moderator, can start to read through them. And uh, I'll try and filter uh, some of these through. Perhaps not everything might be answered, but I'm going to try as much as possible uh, to answer as many of them. So uh, start to think of your questions and put them up. And uh, now we are going to a, a more regional perspective. Um, Dr. Jayat Menon is joining us from Singapore. Uh, he was formerly from the Asia Development Bank. Uh, he's now a visiting fellow at the Institute of Southeast Asian Studies, Yusuf Inshak Institute at uh, NUS Singapore, and he's also a fellow at IDEAS. Now, Jayant is an experienced trade economist, um, and I believe that um, while we're talking a lot about the domestic economy, I think the trade dimension has not been given enough attention in Malaysia, um, especially given our dependence on imports in key areas such as food, uh, which is uh, evidence from the chart that I showed you earlier. Uh, so I'd really be keen to hear more from Jayant. Um, I have a, 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 a question for you based on your piece that you wrote, but I think we'll leave that for later and let you um, let you elucidate your thoughts first uh, with us this morning. So Jayant, over to you. Thank you. Thank you very much, uh, uh, Tricia. And let me also start by thanking Ideas for having me. Uh, I guess as the last speaker, a lot of um, the things that uh, need to be said have already been said, uh, which is a good thing. Uh, I've enjoyed listening to everyone. Um, but let me see if I can say a few more things uh, to add to the discussion. So I think um, the first point to make is that uh, the coronavirus or COVID-19 outbreak uh, is first and foremost a human tragedy. Uh, Carmelo um, just mentioned this as well. 
and I think we have to repeat that, especially economists and financial analysts. Uh, sometimes we can appear as if we forget that this is really a human tragedy more than anything else. Uh, but um, having made that qualification, uh, I will focus mostly on the e uh, likely economic impacts in the next uh, five or so minutes um, um, that I have. So um, actually the economic impacts are mostly driven by the measures that we are introducing to deal with the medical problem, right, of uh, virus contagion. Uh, but the economic impacts also have their own contagion that can uh, spread the uh, problem uh, going forward. Um, now, many have already tried to put numbers uh, to this uh, issue uh, in terms of impact on economic growth, uh, you know, country by country, region and global. Uh, I'm not going to go through all of them here, except to say that the estimates vary greatly. Some are relatively minor, some are quite apocalyptic. Um, and um, as Chris mentioned earlier, one thing is clear is that almost all of them suggest that it's going to be worse than the global financial crisis that we had in 2008. Um, so rolling recessions are expected around the world. Uh, even the IMF has come out warning that a um, uh, world recession uh, this year is almost inevitable. But they also say that a recovery could be quite rapid, uh, happening in 2021. Um, so not just the R word, uh, recession, but the dreaded D word, depression, is starting to be used uh, with uh, a depressing regularity. Uh, so uh, the news is not good. Um, now, uh, let me focus, however, on um, what the main transmission uh, mechanisms are likely to be, uh, and then say a little bit about what we need to consider in assessing the assessments to make sure that we get uh, good uh, information from what is out there. And finally, say a little bit about what uh, we can expect in Malaysia itself. Okay, so I think uh, there's a few channels, uh, uh, some of which we've already discussed, um, and each one has its own time dimension. Uh, in the early phase, we've already seen this, uh, tourism and business travel and all the industries that they are linked to are very quickly affected. Um, but uh, uh, the main impact that we uh, can see in terms of uh, the spread of the economic contagion is through supply chains. Uh, and this is where China's central role becomes uh, critical. Uh, it's a hub for regional supply chains, but it's also a global player. Uh, more than 12% of trade in parts and components globally uh, is controlled uh, by China. So, uh, uh, as we've heard uh, Carmelo mention and describe quite vividly, uh, supply chains are fantastic things. They produce great benefits in efficiency, uh, but they're also very fragile, uh, right? Uh, a break in any part of the value chain can lead to its collapse. Uh, so uh, this is uh, the nature of production that we are faced with and uh, a crisis like the current pandemic uh, highlights the fragility of the system uh, very vividly. Um, the, uh, the virus uh, is also affecting labor supply because of the lockdowns and the MCOs and so on. Uh, and uh, the impact of this, however, will depend on how long they're in place and also will vary by sector. So uh, manufacturing uh, will be particularly hard hit, um, but some service industries, especially those that don't require physical presence, uh, you know, the drop in productivity can be uh, reduced significantly with technological aids, uh, telecommuting and even uh, this current uh, Zoom exercise that we are involved in with the webinar 
is a great illustration of how life can go on uh, in some sectors. Uh, but all of these things will result in quite sharp declines in domestic demand. And uh, the thing to remember here is that there's a compounding effect that will take place. Uh, the drop in demand will feed on each other, and this will magnify the impact and extend uh, short-run effects into the long run. Uh, but perhaps the highest cost uh, will come from the so-called intangibles. Uh, this is the stuff that we can't measure directly, but is very real. Uh, these are the effects on sentiment, the negative impact on sentiment, and also the general uncertainty. Uh, this will affect financial markets, and we're seeing this already, but it will feed into the real sector. Uh, and that's what we need to be concerned about lower investment, consumption, and eventually growth going forward. Um, right, so those are basically the general mechanisms that operate. Let me now relate them very quickly to what I think, uh, how I think they might impact Malaysia. Uh, as we all know, and as we've heard again already today, Malaysia is a small uh, open economy, heavily dependent on trade, uh, it's particularly dependent on trade with China, its major partner. And um, be partly because of this, um, it is very heavily engaged in uh, regional supply chains. So it will be particularly badly affected by um, any reduction, by the reduction in final demands for the goods that are produced within these supply chains. Uh, because the final markets right, for these goods are usually outside the region and demand in all parts of the world is falling sharply. Uh, but over time, uh, there will be supply-side adjustments uh, taking place that will alter both uh, trade and investment patterns. Uh, the main adjustment will involve relocating certain activities um, out of China mainly, and into countries in the ASEAN region. And Malaysia could be a beneficiary of this new investments coming in. And this will offset some of the overall negative impacts that we are observing. Malaysia is also an oil exporter and the government relies heavily on oil revenues to fund its spending. Um, now, the price war that has occurred indirectly as a result of this pandemic uh, and the huge price drops will hit it hard and put further strain on the growing uh, fiscal deficit uh, with the stimulus packages uh, being considered. Now, let me uh, finish on two cautionary notes. Uh, I think in identifying both the short-run and long-run impacts, uh, we have to try and separate the marginal impact um, of the COVID virus from observed incomes. Uh, this is important because uh, our response will, or remedy uh, will vary depend on, depending on the real cause of what we see or the real cause of the disruption, right? We have to remember that um, the COVID-19 pandemic and its impacts have come on top of a number of other factors that have already been affected, affecting the region and beyond. Uh, even before this outbreak, uh, risks of a global growth slowdown were rising, uh, driven by a number of factors, uh, not least of which was the US-China trade war, right? Now, the US-China trade war already started causing a lot of uh, disruption and relocation in the supply chain, right? Now, the uh, COVID-19 crisis will hasten the pace and extent of that restructuring, but it's only partly responsible for what is happening and what will happen. So it will be misleading to attribute all of the observed disruption uh, to COVID-19 alone. Uh, this is easy to do, and we should be careful not to do it, right? Uh, in fact, had the trade war not happened, 
uh, or had the trade war not preceded it, uh, COVID-19 will probably have resulted in even greater disruption to supply chains. Some of this disruption isn't happening because it already happened because of the trade war. Right. So we need to bear that in mind. And finally, uh, we have to reassert the obvious, and that is that uh, the growth and spread of the virus is evolving in unpredictable ways. We still don't know what will happen almost day to day. Uh, and the difficulties of estimating the impacts of a shock that it itself uncertain is self-evident, right? Uh, so we need to consider various scenarios uh, in our assessment. Uh, currently, uh, the trend points to rising risks, uh, often accelerating risks, although this can itself change very suddenly, as we have seen with previous epidemics like SARS and MERS. Um, but all of this uncertainty uh, cautions us and reminds us that we have to be very careful in assessing uh, the assessments and also how important it is to keep recalibrating our tools, our models, to ensure that um, we keep um, uh, up to date with our uh, assessment of the shocks because the shock itself is evolving. So let me stop there, Tricia, and uh, back to you. Uh, thank you very much, Jayant, for giving us a bigger picture of uh, the trade situation. And also, I think um, the last point that you made about cautioning us not to overanalyze uh, the impacts of the economic fallout solely on the COVID-19, but also being aware that there were other structural failures already. Um, but I do want to bring up something that you uh, wrote in one of your articles recently, uh, where you actually believe that the movement restrictions in Malaysia had gone um, too far too quickly. And I think you alluded to that point uh, where you said that um, there are perhaps only marginal effects of uh, imposing such strict MCO requirements given the potential drawbacks within the economy. And I believe you also um, use the term that if you know, Malaysia had not yet seen a rapid community transmission, then it could possibly mean a greater negative uh, blowback in the economy. But um, you know, yesterday we saw the largest increase of 235 cases in Malaysia alone. And I think we haven't actually seen the full brunt of the transmission within the community yet. Um, just wondering about your thoughts on that um, because I think that there are also studies out there and uh, I'll just, uh, I promise this is the last thing that I'm going to show on the screen, um, which is essentially uh, a graph that was taken by, uh, oh, taken from a paper uh, by the Imperial College, uh, which I think is a paper that many governments around the world are using um, to base their own, you know, restriction movement orders on. And this graph basically says that if you do nothing at all, then uh, you have a very you know, high spike of cases at the very start. And if you do um, the, the green one, which is what we're doing right now, uh, it prolongs that curve a lot, a lot greater. And I, and I think everyone already knows we are talking about this flattening um, of the curve. So what, what do you think could have been done better? I mean, seeing the economic um, you know, impact of what's already happening in Malaysia and beyond. Right. Okay. So thank you for that question. I think that uh, is a very important question and it's something that we must keep asking. Uh, are we responding um, in a way that ensures that the benefits um, outweigh the costs, right? Uh, and of course, this is not an easy question to answer in any country, but particularly difficult in countries where data is limited right? Uh, data from testing is still uh, low in Malaysia, uh, even lower in the Philippines, uh, and low in many poor countries because of obvious reasons. Uh, the resources are limited and they don't have the test kits. Um, and, um, um, and, you know, if you're very poor and you 
can't afford healthcare, uh, why would you care about being tested anyway? Um, so I don't think we should not we should do nothing. And no one, I don't think any country is doing nothing. But should we do everything or go the nuclear option, basically, of shutdown when we don't have an overwhelming uh, set of uh, suspicions, at least, that there is rapid community spread, right? Uh, countries that have uh, gone the complete shutdown, um, like Italy and uh, Wuhan in China, should have done so, uh, have done so, and are seeing results. Even Italy now is funny being to see results. In Malaysia, uh, rates have been rising sharply. But there's nowhere near what we would consider rapid community transmission, right? Of course, rates are going to rise when you test more. But uh, how long can you shut down for, right? Shutdowns are by nature unsustainable, right? So have we overreacted too early without enough information is the question I'm asking, not my assessment. And I think this is a question we need to ask more often. Uh, and encourage more debate to ensure that, uh, you know, we don't just assume that you can't do too much of a good thing, right? There are costs of erring on the side of caution, uh, and those costs sometimes can outweigh the benefits. Uh, and that was the point that I was trying to make. Uh, we need to be a bit more open in questioning uh, the measures and not assuming that more is always better. There's no gold standard here, and we don't have to emulate the West, right? We have to look at local conditions, adjust for local realities, right? And take into account that these sorts of measures have a disproportionate burden on the most vulnerable in our society, and they can suffer irreversible harm and greater harm than the impact from the virus itself. I hate to agree with things that Trump says uh, and don't do so very often, but I think when he says the cure could be worse uh, than the than the ailment, um, I don't think that's necessarily true in rich countries like the U.S. But certainly this might be true in poor countries where uh, you know uh, there's tremendous pressure on healthcare systems and where safety nets are almost absent. Yeah, let me stop there. Um, thank you. I think uh, that's a, a very sobering view indeed and one that I don't think has really been given much attention locally. It's probably also considered a controversial question to ask um, given that the priority is, you know, evidently to to also allay, I think, the, the very real public fears um, of, of the spread of the virus. Um, so... Okay, I think uh, I'll do a bit of a stock take at the moment. It is um, 11.56 uh, on my computer and we can run all the way to 12.30. I hope that we don't lose um, the attention of our attendees. But uh, bear in mind that this whole thing is going to be uh, available for, for viewing later because it's, it's currently being recorded. Thank you for listening to this episode of Ideas Allowed. For more information about our work, log on to www.ideas.org.my and follow us on Spotify, iTunes and Podbean.